Welcome to the 32nd episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Recently, AT&T filed a petition to reduce regulations that apply to telephone service. Public Knowledge and several other organizations recently filed responses to that petition. This week, we have a return visit from Harold Felt of Public Knowledge. He and Christopher discuss what Harold describes as the five fundamental principles that have guided telephone policy in the past. Harold discusses how technology has changed services and why we need to be mindful to preserve the fundamentals as we respond to those changes. We should note that when Harold talks about IP, he means Internet Protocol, which is a means of transmitting data by breaking it into packets to transmit the information. In the past, our phones used time division multiplexing. You can quickly learn more details about the different technologies with a quick Internet search. Now here are Christopher and Harold. Welcome back to Community Broadband Bits, Harold. Uh, you are the uh, Senior Vice President of Public Knowledge and a veteran of this show, so we're, uh, we're excited to learn more about this filing. Well, thank you very much for having me back. So a few months ago, uh, AT&T filed a petition with the FCC um, that uh, led to some concern regarding the future of regulation and how we use telecommunications. And then um, the uh, organization that represents rural cooperatives also submitted a, p a petition. And um, just recently, you submitted a response. And I found it really interesting, and I'm looking forward to, to learning what you think the FCC should do in these matters moving forward. Oh, well, thanks very much. Because uh, what's going on right now is we are um, in the process of upgrading our, uh, our national communications networks. We used to have uh, a traditional phone network um, in the last uh, – uh, then we came to a point where we started layering on top of that uh, our Internet protocol or IP-based networks. Now the, the companies are uh, uh, shifting entirely away from the old – uh, telephone-type technology, something that was called time division multiplexing, TDM, um, and are shifting to this new Internet protocol or IP technology. Now, normally, we would look on that as, okay, you know, that's, that's a technical transition. We've had them before with the phone network when we went, you know, people, if you watch old movies, you know, we had, uh, um, you know, switchboard, uh, Mabel with the switchboard, and then we started putting in switches to do that automatically, and we've constantly upgraded, but, um, you know, it takes a little bit of work, but normally it's no big deal for the rest of the public. Uh, what makes it different this time is that for the last 10 years, the FCC has made a bunch of decisions about how we treat our phone networks, how we regulate them, what rules apply, that are based very much on the specific technology uh, or um, the uh, um, the means of the network. So if you were a traditional TDM network, you had one set of rules. If you were a uh, traditional TDM network but were over fiber instead of over copper, you had a different set of rules. If you were a voice over IP network over copper, you had a different set of rules. And if you were a voice over, uh, uh, over IP or VoIP uh, over uh, fiber or something else, you might have a different set of rules. So AT&T, now having made a commitment to upgrade its entire network uh, to being all IP, uh, has gone to the FCC and said, look, we're going to be all IP. We're not going to be that old telephone uh, uh, system anymore. Um, and therefore, all of the old telephone rules ought to go away. Um, maybe we need some rules for 
the phone system, the new, exciting, all IP phone system, but we certainly don't need any of the old rules. And the FCC, we're asking you to basically declare that a whole bunch of rules that have applied until now won't apply to us anymore once we uh, uh, convert our network uh, to, uh, to an all IP network. And some of these rules actually are, or, or you know, they were actually more traditions even probably before they were rules, right? I mean, these things go back decades before the FCC was even formed. I'm guessing. Oh yes, and and you know, the uh, uh, it's um, we have a hundred year social contract that runs between the phone networks and the people of the United States that goes back to something called the Kingsbury Commitment, which was. Uh, uh, commitments that the old AT&T uh, system made uh, back 100 years ago in order to get uh, the monopoly that they were ultimately given on uh, telephone service in the country. Um, and this set of, of uh, five fundamental principles which produce many of these rules um, has guided uh, the uh, development of the uh, phone network at you know, was critical to making sure that the phone network was something that, you know, in the United States that everybody benefited from uh, and uh, made our uh, phone network uh, for a very long time uh, the envy of the world. Uh, as we move forward on this, um, we have tried to uh, uh, bring the discussion back to what we think um, is the right discussion, which is about these five fundamental uh, principles, rather than being the discussion that AT&T and some others would like to have, which is about regulation versus deregulation. Right. They they really want to focus on the idea that these regulations are old as opposed to what the regulations are. And so in a minute, I think we'll, we'll step through the five fundamentals. Um, those who uh, want to get um, – who re want to read it, I really encourage you to read the uh, public knowledge filing. We're going to put it up on our site. I'm sure it will be available a lot of other places. Um, but it's uh, it's got a 10-page summary to start that reads really quickly. It's very accessible, and it includes the term pixie dust. So it comes very highly recommended. And if that's too much for you, we have a one-page blog post that summarizes it even more. So The first one, I think appropriately enough, is universal service. That's right. So can you tell me uh, why that's important? Well, this is access to all Americans. It's broader than what we think of traditionally as universal service. But this has been the core principle of our uh, communications networks for 100 years. This was the promise that AT&T made in order to get their, uh, their monopoly, the importance of making sure that all Americans share um, in a communications network that links our country together actually historically goes back to the founding of the nation where the post office and the postmaster general was one of the first cabinet level positions because at that time it was so important that we have a national postal system so that everybody could communicate with each other. Uh, and this is really, we think, the, one of the most important features of our uh, uh, modern communication system. Um, we must not become the first industrial nation to walk back from our commitment to 100% um, access, uh, accessibility, and service. Uh, there was a, uh, um, you know, there have been some times when people have suggested, well, you know, rural areas are going to be too expensive, and uh, some people are just never going to be able to afford it, and therefore, um, you know, 98% or 95% ought to be good enough. Uh, and our feeling is absolutely not. If there is one thing that we have stood for in this country for 100 years, it is that everybody gets access 
to the essential communications technologies. And the technology evolves, but the need does not. And we're, and we're talking about real access as opposed to what, once again, I think AT&T wants to speak, uh, and they're not alone, certainly other phone companies as well. They want to talk in generalities, whereas we want a specific. We want to know that people have access. We don't right. want to know that, that my wife's parents can use a cell phone in their yard. We want to make sure that in every room of their house, they're able to have access uh, to communicate. Right. Well, this is the... Well, our uh, feeling public knowledge, we didn't uh, at this early stage get too much uh, into the weeds on the uh, proposal. We think that um, it's uh, important to, um, you know, to establish the framework first, but this is absolutely correct. Um, right now, our feeling is that you cannot turn off the traditional copper network unless you have a network in place that does the same thing or better. So right now, wherever you live, you can say to whoever is the carrier that is uh, giving your franchise area, you've got to come out here and bring me a copper line. So if we're going to replace that with something wireless, everybody in, that re in the service region is going to get that wireless and at a quality of service that is uh, equivalent to what they have now on the copper line or better, uh, and it has to be affordable. Because uh, it's not going to do you any good to say, well, we turned off your uh, $40 uh, a month copper service for basic voice, and now in order to have any kind of service, you need to subscribe to our $120 a month home wireless package. And the voice part of it costs $40, but you can't get the voice part of it separately. Now, that's not going to be good enough. If somebody can only uh, afford um, you know, a basic voice package, that basic voice package has has to be affordable and accessible to everyone. Uh, it's the same thing for uh, the deaf and hearing aid uh, compatible and others with physical disabilities. One of our social commitments has been to make sure that our phone system provides uh, service to people regardless of physical disability. We need to maintain that, and we need to ensure that uh, communities that have been uh, traditionally marginalized and uh, that have traditionally not uh, enjoyed the benefits of these technologies have access uh, to these technologies. So minority communities, uh, other communities that uh, are frequently uh, left out uh, or included only as an afterthought, we need to make sure that those communities are uh, benefiting from this upgrade as well. And I think that brings us to, to number two, which is to say that solving some of those problems, making sure that everyone's connected, may mean new kinds of networks. And point number two is that they have to be able to interconnect with the existing networks. Right. We call this interconnection and competition. Uh, one of the things that has actually changed in the last hundred years is that we made a switch from regarding telephone service as a natural monopoly to something where you could have competitors and eliminate uh, some regulations. Some may say we've eliminated too many, but whatever, we would decide that we wanted competition Competition would be a good way to make sure that technology continues to be uh, innovative. Uh, competition would uh, bring other benefits. Uh, so we made a decision to set up a regulatory structure that encourages competition, and that is through uh, something called interconnection, which is a basic rule that says any communications network has to connect to any other communications network that asks. You can't say, no, I'm not going to connect to you. I'm not going to terminate your calls uh, or let you call people on my network because you're my commercial rival. 
uh, and therefore uh, I'm not going to pass through your calls, or yeah, I'll pass through your calls, but in such a crappy way that uh, um, that poor way that uh, you know well, you might as well not bother to try. This not only facilitates competition in a lot of rural areas; it's the basics, uh, it's the way in which people get served. You have a lot of places where even at the height of the AT&T monopoly. Um, Ma Bell didn't want to go because it was very expensive to serve those areas. So one of the uh, fundamental principles that they agreed to was interconnection so that rural co-ops and municipal uh, telecom providers and others who are uh, out there actually providing service on the ground um, can connect to uh, the network and have their calls completed anywhere in the country. So this principle also very much needs to be preserved. So we start with universal service. We move on to interconnection and competition. What's number three? Number three is consumer protection. We have in this country um, enjoyed very good laws uh, on our uh, phone system for so long that we just take them for granted. But the fact that a phone call is private unless you go to a court and get a warrant uh, and the phone company can't look and see how many times I send out for pizza and then start sending me pizza ads or you know, directing saying, hey, I noticed you called Domino's. Maybe you'd like to try uh, uh, Little Caesar instead. You're not allowed to do that because uh, we have very strong consumer protection laws on the phone uh, system. Um, you know, we have truth and billing rules that require the phone company to, uh, um, to uh, obey certain rules about how they bill for things. Uh, we have rules against something called slamming and cramming, which prevent you from being charged for services or having your phone switched uh, without your permission. So all of these are very important consumer protections. We have to make sure that as we upgrade the network that these protections are not lost. That saying, oh, well, it's an all IP network, it's an all new network, and there will be lots of competition and everything will work out just fine. Yeah, that's okay, but you know what? Competition doesn't automatically protect consumers. Anybody who's ever shopped for a used car knows that used cars are the most competitive market in the world, and we need lemon laws and other things to protect us, even though we've got as much competition as you could possibly want. So even if we said this was competitive, we would still need consumer protection, and that's fundamental principle number three. Right, and and interestingly enough, number four actually just ties right into that lemon law, uh, which is the network reliability, making yeah. sure that these things actually work when we need them to. Right. I mean, this is, again, one of these things that we have had a phone system that works reliably well in this country for so long that we just expect that to naturally happen. We don't recognize that the reason we have that is because – we had all kinds of regulations that mandate reliability um, and uh, uh, that uh, make sure that the phone system works the same way for everybody all the time. You pick it up, you dial that phone number, you get connected. It always works. Uh, and we originally had it so that you know, the network was self-powered and it would work even when you had a blackout because we recognized that if there's an emergency, you need to be able to rely on this network. And even if it's not an emergency, in order to be able to use it on a regular basis, you need to rely on it. We have not done the same thing in these IP networks, and increasingly people are starting to notice. People noticed in Hurricane Sandy that you, know, you could find, if you could find a payphone that was connected to the old copper network, you could get a, make a call on that, but your cell phone probably didn't work because the local cell phone infrastructure 
was down or didn't have power. The, uh, you know, even when it's not a storm, we just had AT&T uh, experience a, uh, a software glitch as they updated Uverse, and, you know, 70,000 customers were without telephone service for a couple of days. The, uh, one of the people who was interviewed for one of these articles said, well, you know, that old copper line that you used to have, that old landline you used to have where you picked it up and it always worked, I guess that's not happening anymore. And the answer is, yeah, it's not happening anymore because we have not made the policy choices that make it happen. And as part of this transition, the answer is not to get Americans to accept a less reliable network. The answer is to require that IP networks be reliable. So the uh, the final item, uh, once again, it sort of ties in with that reliability, but it's um, a little bit more specific in terms of public safety. And uh, I think you tie in, um, tie in some burglary systems and some of the other things that we tend to forget depend on the uh, network as it works right now. That's right. And a lot of fire safety codes uh, and building codes depend on the existence of a traditional uh, phone line. Now, in part, that's because of its reliability. Uh, but on top of that, there's just uh, the fact that the, the IP technology enables what people are calling the next generation of 911. In fact, you know, many people have recognized how this technological upgrade can facilitate and improve our 911 system. Uh, although, well, I point out we just had an incident here in the Mid-Atlantic region where uh, in a you know, sudden windstorm uh, we had a massive 911 failure. So we need to uh, make sure that our 911 system, even more so than the rest of the network, is always on and always working. As we move forward, since we're already kind of working on this next generation 911, the big challenge here in part is to make sure that the decisions and the technologies that we use for 911 implementation, next generation 911 implementation, don't need to be altered or retrofitted once we get the rest of the network upgraded. And we're kind of doing all of these very complicated things at the same time. And one of the things about having a framework like this uh, is that we've said, look, if you have a framework like this, first of all, you have a checklist to make sure that you're making all the parts work together. Uh, and it also gives you a checklist against any proposal. So if you have AT&T comes and says, well, we want you to get rid of this set of regulations because we think they're not necessary, you say, all right, well, let me pull out my checklist. And does the change impact service to all Americans? Is everybody still going to have you know, the quality of service when I, we give you this change? Is this going to hurt competition, or is this going to continue to allow interconnection to happen? Is this still going to protect consumers in the same way? Uh, is, this, is it going to make it the network less reliable, um, and uh, is 911 still going to work? So yep, the answer to those is, no, checks out just fine, then sure, we should make changes. Uh, if not, then uh, we need to figure out how we're going uh, to make sure that all of these you know, uh, longstanding social uh, obligations that have been part of the phone network and that we all rely on uh, are going to continue. And you, you finish up the, the filing with something that, that's very near and dear to my heart, which is a, a recognition of the role that, that states and local authorities should play uh, in enforcing these five fundamentals. In, in particular, something we're always a fan of at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is this idea of floors, not ceilings, which is to say, uh, if I read it correctly, that the, um, the FCC should be stepping in if a state is not 
stepping up to provide the five fundamentals, then the FCC should guarantee them. Um, but presumably, if the state wanted to go a little bit further and uh, in terms of how it um, identifies some of these pieces, then it should probably have that authority. Absolutely. And you know, look, there's an unfortunate myth in Washington, D.C. that is often pushed by uh, industry you know, folks who hate regulation where they say, oh, you know, we just need one national policy and we need to uh, not let these terrible state and local governments get in the way. And, you know, and, uh, you know, it's simply not true. I mean, first of all, state and local governments are provide vital information and services about the local uh, conditions. Um, we can have a national framework, and I think we must, that provides a floor, as you said, uh, for our national telecommunication system. But how you implement that on the ground, people who are actually there at the state level and at the local level are in a much better position uh, to understand uh, how that's going to work um, and to make it work to fit the peculiarities of that local uh, situation. The role of the national government ought to be to provide, you know, as you say, a floor and a basic uh, framework, uh, and then uh, local governments uh, come in. The other is a very practical question. You know, you look at uh, what's going on, um, you know, today in a uh, standard um, situation, and state and local authorities process hundreds of routine complaints and problems and issues and resolve disputes. There is just no way the FCC could keep up with all of those. I mean, not if you doubled and tripled and quadrupled their budget uh, could they absorb all of the, the decisions uh, and problems that are resolved at the you know, state and local level. So I get that it's very tempting to these guys who see themselves as, you know, oh, we have all of this regulation, uh, let's get rid of that. But the reality is that you really want to keep this at a local level where you can, uh, and not up to a national level, except for where you have to. We actually we have evidence of that in the statewide franchising, where states like North Carolina and California that moved to a statewide franchising uh, didn't bother to establish a statewide office for submitting complaints. And so consumers literally have nowhere to go in those states for their cable service complaints anymore, whereas they used to be able to go to their, uh, their city. Yep, and uh, that happened... Uh, also, in 1984, when Congress decided to take local uh, franchising authority pretty much out of the equation, uh, and it was just a disaster, and a lot of the 1992 Act, uh, the 1992 Cable Act, was about trying to correct uh, those mistakes and putting uh, you know, local government back in. The problem is, uh, in Washington, we have to keep relearning the same lesson. People, you know, lobbyists for the special interests come in and they say, oh, preempt the states, one national policy, and then it all goes to hell. And the, the people back home tell their members of Congress, you know, do something about this, make this happen. You know, I can't get my service anymore. And then people come back and they put local government back in. Uh, I think it would save us an awful lot of time this time around uh, if we didn't uh, have to make that mistake again and if we just left state and local government actually in the equation. Thank you so much, Harold. I'm really appreciative of. Um, not just coming on the show to explain it, but that um, you're making this so accessible. I mean, talking about it in terms of five fundamentals where we can understand exactly what we're talking about, it's just a terrific framework. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Christopher interviewing Harold Feld of Public Knowledge. As mentioned early in the interview, you can read a summary of the five fundamentals and the actual filing on the Public Knowledge Policy blog at publicknowledge.org blog. 
We encourage you to also explore the Public Knowledge website for info on issues such as net neutrality, promoting innovation, and protecting creative rights. If you have any questions or comments, please send us a note. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Our handle on Twitter is at communitynets. This show was released on February 5, 2013. Thanks to the Mojo Monkeys for the music licensed using Creative Commons. The song is called Bodacious. Bodacious.